Are we better? Absolutely not. We are Christians because of nothing in us, but solely because of divine grace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part two of Not Even One. What does it mean to be under sin? Well, this phrase is what we'll look at today as we continue to examine the Apostle Paul's devastating portrait of the human condition. As you were reminded last time, there is not one group or individual that is exempt from the reality of inner sin. Not only that, Paul uses legal language to describe the condition of your soul before God in legal terms, a defendant before a judge. And as you'll be reminded today, your response to the true condition of your soul has eternal consequences. Let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Verse 9 says, for, because, here's why that can't be what I'm saying, because we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. He says, listen, we're no better because I've already shown you that all Jews and all Greeks are under sin, and that includes us. Now, remarkably, here in verse 9, Paul provides us with his own summary of everything he has taught in the letter to the Romans so far, from chapter 1, verse 18, to here. Notice how he says it. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the point he's been making, and he makes it clear that that's the point he's been making. Now look at what he says specifically. The Greek word translated charge, that's a legal word. It means literally to accuse beforehand to charge with guilt before time. That is, before the time to to actually find a person guilty. So this is a legal word for an indictment. So far, there's no proof, there's no conviction, it's an indictment. I have indicted, is what he's saying. I have indicted both groups with sin. By the way, that's an important point to make because Paul doesn't claim here that he has already proven the guilt of all people. He's going to do that in just a minute with a string of Old Testament references. So far, he has merely issued an indictment, an act, a legal accusation, a formal accusation. And notice who he's indicted. He says, I have accused the Jews of being guilty and the Greeks as well. And in this context, the word Greek is used of all non-Jewish people. So basically he's saying, all Jews and all non-Jews. What does that mean? Everybody. You are either Jewish or you're non-Jewish. It's everyone, all humanity. I have made a formal accusation already, Paul says, that all humanity is legally guilty before God. Guilty of what? Look at verse 9. We have already charged that both are all under sin. Now that is a momentous expression because it's the first time in Paul's letter to the Romans that he uses the word sin. He's talked a lot about our guilt. He's talked a lot about what 
causes God to be angry with sinners, but it's the first time he actually uses the word. What is sin? The Greek word simply means to miss the mark. It's to fail to hit the target that God has set with his commands. That's sin. Let me give you a theological definition. Sin, the catechism says, is any transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. My wife's parents taught her the catechism when she was a child, and as we've taught our own children, and uh, she tells the story that when she was in, I think it was first grade, somewhere early in school, uh, there was a new teacher that came in to the school, and, and uh, early in the school year asked the, asked the kids, all right, kids, so tell me, what is sin? You know, expecting the sort of typical first grade response. And my wife was eager to answer, you know, and held her hand up, call on me, call on me, and teacher calls on her, and she stands up and she says, sin is any transgression of or lack of conformity to the law of God. <laughs> that poor first grade teacher, she was thinking, what have I gotten into? <laughs> but that's exactly right. That's what sin is. But I want you to notice in verse 9 what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that we all sin, that we all commit sin, which is true, and he's going to prove that very quickly here. He's going to say it in other ways throughout the letter, but that's not what he says here. Instead, notice he says, and you've got to put on your grammar hats here, it works in both English and Greek, he says, we are. What is are? Are is a verb of being. It's a verb that speaks of a state of being or a condition. He says, we are in a state of being or a condition that can best be described as under sin. Now, that is absolutely crucial to get because when you and I think of sin, we think of acts we commit, and those are issues. But our problem is greater than that. Our problem is, in the sight of God, we are all in a state or condition of being under sin. That's a remarkable indictment of all humanity. Now, what does that mean? It's absolutely foundational to understand this, because remember, this is Paul's summary of everything he's taught so far. And it also brings us to issues he'll touch on in the future in this book. So we need to understand what this means. Under sin refers to several realities, several spiritual realities. Let me give them to you. First of all, to be under sin means to be in the realm of sin. All people belong to the kingdom where sin reigns. You know, when we look at people and we evaluate them, what do we do? We evaluate them on a sort of sliding scale of goodness. We look at somebody and we say, a coworker, a, a fellow student, a neighbor, a family member, and we say, you know, he's a pretty good guy. Or we say, you know, he's, he's not really a very good guy at all. We're looking at relative states of goodness, a scale. That's not how God looks at all. From God's perspective, every person on this planet, and let me say it, more personally, every person in this room lives in one of two realms. You either live in the realm of the kingdom of Satan and sin reigns in your life, 
or you live in the kingdom of God's Son and righteousness is at home in your life. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland in the spiritual world. You're in one or the other. To use the language of Romans, you are either under law or you are, by by an act of God's grace, under grace. That's it. You're under law. You're in the realm of law and sin. Those two go together. In fact, you see in verse 9, he says under sin. Down in verse 19, he says under law, because they go together. If you're under the law, you're you're under sin too. Or, as he's going to say in chapter 5 and chapter 6, you're under grace. That's it. This morning, you are either still under sin, you are still in the state in which you were born, or by an act of divine mercy, you are under grace. There's no middle ground. All human beings, apart from divine intervention, live in the realm of sin. The kingdom of Satan, rather than the kingdom of God. Secondly, under sin means under the practice of sin. This is the obvious one. All people routinely commit sins. You understand this. We do it in our thoughts. We do this in our attitudes. We do it in our words. We do it in our actions. This is his point in chapter 3, verse 10 and following. In fact, look at verse 12. He gets to our actions. There is none who does good. What that means is that we all sin. And he goes on to describe sin in our speech in verses 13 and 14, sin in our relationships in verses 15 to 17, and in verse 18, sin in our relationship to God. We routinely commit sins. We are under the practice of sin. We are under sin. Thirdly, it means we are under the power of sin. This is something different. This is something more. All people, as a part of the nature with which they're born, are enslaved by sin. In fact, Paul draws two word pictures in Romans that that draw this relationship and powerfully portray our relationship to sin. One of those word pictures is that of a ruthless despot, a ruthless king who is over us and we are his hapless and helpless subjects and we just have to do what he says. The other picture is of a ruthless, abusive slave owner and we are the slaves. Let me show you this. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. I want you to see how he personifies sin. Sin is a power. Sin is a powerful influence. Look at Chapter 5, verse 21. Here's that first picture. He says, before Christ, before the work of Christ, sin reigned. Sin was like a ruthless despot ruling our lives. You come to chapter 6, verse 6, and he comes to the other picture. He says, you know, those of us in Christ, this is no longer true of us, but notice the end of verse 6, we are no longer slaves to sin. Implying what? We once were. We were sin's slaves. Sin was like an abusive slave master, and we, it's helpless slaves. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. 
He goes back to the other image. Don't let sin reign. If you're in Christ, it doesn't need to happen anymore. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it be that despot that you obey it and obey its lusts. Look at verse 14. Again, this other image. For sin shall not be your slave master. And here it is. I love this. Here's what's happened. You were under law or under sin, but now by divine grace you are under grace. You've changed realms. Look at verse 17. Here he has both the before and after. But thanks be to God that though you were before Christ, before conversion, you were slaves of sin. Sin was, was your ruling master. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, the gospel. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. One more passage. Look over at chapter 7, verse 11. Paul here is talking about his pre-conversion state. Notice how he personifies sin. He says, sin, this is 7-11, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment not to covet... Sin deceived me, and through that commandment, sin killed me. You see the the powerful word picture? Paul's describing sin as this, this abusive slave owner. And listen, if you're in Christ, you understand that because that's how you used to be. That's what sin used to be like in your life. It told you what to do. No matter how many times you tried to break free, no matter how many times you made New Year's resolutions, no matter how many times you tried to change yourself, you tried to, to modify your behavior, you kept coming back. Why? Because it was your master. It was a power in your life that you couldn't break. It's only in Christ, Paul says in Romans 6, that that power is broken. This is exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? You remember in John 8 when the Jews said, we've never been enslaved to anyone, which I think is one of the most fascinating statements in the Bible. And Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever commits sin, think about this now, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. You commit sin, it becomes your master. You understand this experientially. You know, when outside of Christ, we start flirting and playing with sin. And we think, you know, we can just take it so far and stop. We think, you know, I'm only going to do this. It's, it's not going to get out of hand. I'm going to control it. But sin can't be controlled like that. Sin is a power. We are under sin outside of Christ. Sin presses us, it crushes us, it controls us, it dominates us, it enslaves us. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ, sin is our oppressive master and we are its slaves. Not only does under sin mean in the realm of sin, under the practice of sin, under the power of sin, but fourthly also under the guilt of sin. All people are legally guilty of sinning against God. There is legal guilt. I'm not talking now about a subjective feeling. I'm not talking about you're feeling guilty. I'm talking about real legal guilt. Go back to chapter 1, verse 32. Paul begins to deal with this issue here. He's talking about the pagans here. And he says, although they know the ordinance of God, 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death. He's talking about legal guilt before the law. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. But the same thing is true of the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 1. When you judge others, you condemn yourself because you do the same things. Therefore, verse 2, the judgment of God is going to fall on you. Verse 3, you're not going to escape God's judgment. Verse 5, you're storing up God's wrath for the day of judgment. We're talking about legal guilt before God the judge and creator. Go to chapter 3, verse 19. Here it's all humanity. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law and therefore under sin, so that every mouth may be closed. That's a fascinating legal expression. We'll deal with it more when we get there. But it's, it's a legal term for not having a valid defense. Nothing to say. You get to, the, you get to the bar of God's judgment, his justice, and you think you've got all these things you want to defend yourself with, and you just throw your hand over your mouth because there's nothing to say. No valid defense. Guilty. Every one of us, apart from the gospel, are legally guilty of having broken God's law. Number five, to be under sin also means to be under the penalty of sin. Not just guilty, but the sentence is coming. All people in the world have already been pronounced guilty by God and are simply awaiting the execution of the penalty. There's, a, there's another expression down in verse 19 that communicates that. Notice that all the world may become literally legally liable to God. It implies the idea of guilt, a guilty verdict, and a sentence having been pronounced. The closest we can get is somebody living on death row. You know, they've already been found guilty, they've already been sentenced, they're just waiting for the verdict to be carried out. That's all humanity, under the penalty of sin. We are all under sin in those ways. Folks, nothing makes more profoundly clear our need for the gospel than what Paul has said here. Our only hope is instead of continuing to be under sin as we are by nature, is for God to intervene and for us to move into a different realm and be under grace. That's our only hope. Now what conclusions should we reach from this summary of Paul's indictment here in chapter 3 verse 9? There are three of them, very quickly. Three conclusions. Number one, no group of people is by nature, that is apart from grace, spiritually superior to another. Paul says in verse 9, are we better? Are we Christians, are we inherently better? Not at all. Not at all. When it comes to sin, when it comes to being under sin, understand this, we are all on a level playing field. Now that's revolutionary, because most of us like to look around and say, well, you know, I'm not as good as that person, but I'm not as bad as that person. And Paul says, you've got to get that out of your mind. That doesn't even exist when it comes to God's perspective. We're all on a level playing field. We are all equally guilty, all equally condemned, all equally headed to judgment in need of the gospel. Number two, it means human sinfulness is truly universal. We see, notice the universal scope 
of sin in the sweeping sort of comprehensive language in this paragraph. Look at verse 9. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Verse 19, all the world is accountable before God. Verse 20, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. But Paul isn't content to leave his indictment of human depravity at that sort of sweeping universal level. He also gets very personal and individual. Look at verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. That is the psalmist and Paul's way to say, not you, not me, nobody. There's no exception. Not even one. Verse 11, there is not one who understands. There is not one who seeks for God. Verse 12, there is not one who does what is good in the sight of God. Not even one. Verse 19, every mouth is closed. This is very personal, very individual. Have you ever thought about you in those terms? That's what God says. Not you, not me. Lloyd-Jones writes, the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker. There has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line and he's not true to it. All, universally, without a single exception, the good people, the very best and nicest people, as well as the worst and the most vile, are all under sin. There's a third conclusion here, and that is that man's greatest sin problem is a legal problem. Man's greatest sin problem is a legal problem. Now, that's not how we normally think about our sin. We think about the problem with our specific sins and their control and how we've committed them again and again, but that's not how God looks at sin. Did you notice how Paul describes our problem with sin in legal terminology? If we go back to chapter 1, he talks about the ordinance of God and the death penalty He talks about in chapter 2, God as judge and a coming day of judgment before the judge and God rendering to each person according to his deeds. We get to this paragraph that we're studying together. And notice he refers to God's law. He refers to a legal indictment, to the absence of any legal defense, and to a guilty verdict. It's all legal terms. It's all courtroom language. Why is that important? Because it tells us that our problem with sin is primarily a legal problem before the judge of the universe. And that also means that the only solution to our problem is a legal solution. And that brings us to justification. You see, the only way our problem with God, the righteous lawgiver and judge, can be resolved is for God to make a legal decision. For God, the righteous judge, to take the righteousness that doesn't belong to us, that belongs to someone else, that belongs to his son, and to credit that righteousness to us, and to treat us before the law as if we had lived that life of righteousness. That's our only hope. That's justification. That's the heart of the gospel. There's only one other place that this expression in verse 9, under sin, is used in Scripture, verbatim. It's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. Listen to what Paul writes. The Scripture has shut up 
everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There's the gospel. That's our hope. Our problem is a legal problem and our solution is a legal solution. It's called justification. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, Not Even One. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast. Do join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.